Now let me share some stuff here. Um, in the next few weeks, I want to start going through Romans. Romans is a book, above all others, that God has used over the centuries to bring revival and renewal. I mean, none of us have seen revival. Um, we've read about it. It is amazing. Though God showed it to me when I was at university in a personal way. So that's when I've known it's real. And when God pours out his spirit, his people are re renewed and the power of God spreads out. And the calling is for us to repent, isn't it? Two Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and I will turn and heal their land, forgive their sins. Now, before we go on to Romans, I want to look at just three chapters in the second letter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote this the year before he wrote the Romans letter, about the year 55, end of 55, beginning of 56. And the first letter to the Corinthians, in fact, there were actually four Corinthian letters, only two have survived, uh, the ones that God wanted to survive, obviously. Um, in the first one, there's it's very kind of in-your-face practical stuff, including the agape, although it's not mentioned by that. Um, it's a big feast, and it was being abused. And rich people were getting out early and eating the food, and the poorer people came later in the day and didn't have much left. Um, there's all sorts of practical stuff. Lots of things about spiritual gifts. Now, when God revives his church, he often pours out amazing spiritual gifts and gifts of healing and, in, and tongues and words like this and interpretations and wisdom. But it all comes from the Holy Spirit. But the second letter of, of Corinthians, second to us, that is, it's probably the fourth in the series, really expresses Paul's heart. And what it is to know the life of the Holy Spirit in a personal kind of way. Now, our motto for the year, uh, looking to Jesus, is found here in chapter 3. Listen to this. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When you really have the Lord change your life, when you have the Spirit of God come into your heart, when you have your sins forgiven through the cross, then you have the work of God, which is there in chapter 5. You become the righteousness of God in him. You become a new creation. Now, you've still got the old body, but you have a new life. And it all starts, really, from what Jesus did on the cross. And if you're following in the Bible, we'll read a few verses, first of all, from chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. 
Now, don't forget, and I'll explain why when I come to it. It says New Covenant, but really, the best translation is the New Testament, which is why the book's called the New Testament. And there's a difference. And we'll explain what that difference is. So I will read it as Testament. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do you do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The tablets of stone, of course, are the Ten Commandments. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards you. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a New Testament, not of letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, before we move on, I want to play that song I mentioned on my letter last week, Lauren Daigle's I'm Losing My Religion. That's from her album, Look Up, Child. Um, I find Lauren Daigle's music quite incredible. Um, she writes a lot, most of it herself. That's with the help of some friends. But that's it. That's what this is all about. Losing your religion and finding Jesus. That's what these chapters were about. Paul says, and look, I haven't prepared sermons. Let me tell you that. God told me to stop preparing sermons two years ago, just over. And I, I haven't been doing it. He's given me permission to preach again. I, I was sort of sharing just on the internet. But I'm just taking it as it comes. So that's why I say if you want to share, you just share. Now, Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need letters of recommendation? Um, when you went between one synagogue and another, and then one church is another, you'd have a letter of recommendation saying this person is kosher, okay. Uh, believes the right things, lives the right kind of life. Do we need that, says Paul? No, we've got you. You're our letter of recommendation. I've got a song about that, which we might sing in a minute. I don't know. Which uh, one I wrote myself 20, 30 years ago. Ah, write on me, make it plain. Through my life, your love proclaim. Make the message clear for everyone to see. Grace and truth in each line. And your name, Lord, clearly signed for a letter to the world I want to be. In other words, people are not going to read the Bible some might, but not many, but they will read you and me. So do we commend the God we believe in? Now, if you get into the heart of your Bible, open it up in the middle, you'll get to the Psalms. Everything is in the Psalms. <laughs> Life was a masquerade, says Lauren Daigle. Playing the games I had to play. Trying to keep my conscience clear. Well, what I love about the scriptures, what I love about the Psalms is 
Everything is said. Everything is expressed. Everything that you and I go through is there. And we do not commend ourselves. The Apostle Paul at one time commended himself. I remember years ago on the, um, what was that thing that Rowan Atkinson was in um, with about the army? What was it called? That's the one, Blackadder, yeah. And um, he was there, and this girl was making up to him and said, uh, tell me, is there someone important in your life? And he said, as a matter of fact, there is. Who is that? Me, he said. <laughs> Now, that was Saul of Tusks. He was the one person important in his life. Until he met Christ. Jesus appeared to him. And it was a bodily appearance, not just a vision. Because an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord. And he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He went blind for three days. He said, go to Damascus and I'll tell you what you have to do. And he went to Damascus and a man called Ananias was told to go and lay hands on him so he'd have his sight back and baptize him. And Ananias said, God, this man's been wreaking havoc amongst your people. Why do you want to go see him? And God says, no, he's my chosen servant to take the message far across the sea. And as you know, I'm perfectly convinced by the early church evidence that St. Paul came here to this country as well, between his two imprisonments. But he was a changed man because a revelation had come to him of his own corruption. He thought he was perfect. He thought he was blameless because he judged by outward things. But God does not judge by outward things, friends. God judges us by our hearts, and our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are selfish. Our hearts want our way. Someone important in our life is me. Well, when you encounter Jesus, you get off the throne, and you're enthroned the Savior. And you commend the Savior. So you are our letter of recommendation because your lives have been so changed, everything went on in Corinth. It's on an isthmus. Can you say that word? <laughs> isthmus. And therefore, it had ports, seaports on both sides. And where there are seaports, particularly in the ancient world, but Still true, no doubt. A lot of immorality. And Corinthiadze, in a verb in the Greek, meant to be immoral. There's a whole lot of stuff going on with these people. Even as Christians, they weren't really going God's way. You read it in the first letter. So, but they were changed nonetheless. They were commending the truth of the gospel of what Jesus does 
by cleansing sins by the blood of his, his own blood and filling people with the Holy Spirit. And their lives are changed. And the world sees it. That's the letter of recommendation Paul says, I need. Just you, just you. And it's written on tablets, not of stone, like the Ten Commandments, but on tablets of human hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when a person yields to Jesus. Friends, these chapters are all about what God does. But there are some things that we're told to do. We're told to turn to the Lord that the veil from our faces and hearts may be taken away. And we're told to be reconciled to God. We're not passive. We don't become Christians passively. We don't become transformed passively. And we're told to, to look to Jesus. But nonetheless, it's all God's work. And so he says, your life is a testimony. Now, let me tell you, I stand here really, really struggling with this because of what I said earlier. I have had thoughts, attitudes, behavior, completely unglorified to God. I find myself unreconciled to my situation in so many ways. God has to bring me back. And says, just you trust me. Just believe. I'll lead you on. And I have to confess, I have to keep short accounts with it. But nonetheless, the Lord is working. He's working in you. And he's working in me. By his Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the confidence, verse 4, we have through Christ towards God. We've got confidence that God is working. We've got confidence the Holy Spirit is operating. We would like to see far more. We would like to see revival. But let's not forget what God is doing right here, right now, in the lives of people here. Including my own. Do you know, I don't think I've ever shed so many tears in my life as I have over these last two and a half years. I said to Becky, why am I so emotional? Why do I feel things so deeply? Now, she's nearly level four counsellor <laughs> coming up in July. So she, she, she can describe everything I've, that I am and do in technical terms. So I say, oh, thank you for telling me why well, I am as I am. <laughs> and she prays with me. <laughs> Whoa. I feel things so deeply. Do you know, let me just give an example. I can't get over this, really. Um, I was just having breakfast one day, I don't know what it was, yesterday, it was Friday, I don't know what it was. In Morrison, sometimes I go to breakfast just to, to break, you know, to kind of... I rattle around in that house. I thought, I'll go out. So I went to Morrison's for some breakfast. I have a small breakfast, but I do like 
black pudding, and I do like the mushroom. <laughs> so adds a bit to the bill. Anyway, there was this man came in as well, and there's one of the ladies there who brings the food out. And I'm not quite sure what it was, but he was so rude to her. It was appalling to speak to a woman the way he did. Speak to anyone the way he did. I was absolutely appalled. But I couldn't get involved, obviously. But I did just go up to the lady, you know, when I finished my breakfast. I was really, really sad to hear you spoken to like that. I think that was just... Well, she said he always does that if he comes in. I said, well, let me tell you, I'm really sad about it. I really felt for you. So uncalled for, and it was so out of order. I just want you to know that. Well, she said, it did upset me. I said, well, I'm sure it upset you. Of course it did, and I feel for you. Do you know, I was feeling it right through the day. And Becky came in at the end, and I said, why am I still feeling that? Why am I still feeling it? I don't know. But I've got a lot of sensitive points, let me tell you. In my <laughs> things that I've just not forgotten about, but but now what did Becky call it? Empathetic something or other. She, she gave it a name anyway. So I thought, okay, that's what I've got. Anyway. <laughs> but then we should be sensitive as believers to the needs of others, shouldn't we? But I find it incapacitating sometimes. Anyway, look, then verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. And look at this. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God, who's made us to be sufficient. Sufficient to be ministers of a New Testament, not of the letter, but the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's work backwards from that. The Spirit gives life. Let me tell you, for many people, even many Christians, and this was certainly true of me, and can still be true of me, I can lapse into law, legalism, doing stuff. Even coming to a meeting like this can be a kind of custom. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, in the early church, it was 95% Holy Spirit and 5% human, but in our today's church, it's just about turned around the other way. And so much of what we do, even in the name of Christianity, is just doing religion. That's why that song means so much to me. I'm losing my religion and finding you, finding something different. And the different is you. Well, that's what the woman has found. <laughs> she didn't expect what she got. <laughs> She'd had five men, six men, and the, first, the one she had, was living with was not her husband. She didn't expect what she got that day. Oh, come on, listen. To this man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? You ask me, says Jesus, I'll give you living water. So Paul knew he didn't have sufficiency of himself. 
God kills our self-sufficiency. I remember hearing of a lady who was a Christian and a Christian speaker at the ladies' conventions. She was one of those women who had everything together. So she had strong faith in Jesus, attractive woman, able speaker, Bible student, model wife, gave enough, you know, good time to her husband, model mother, had her children just as she wanted them to be. Everything was perfect. And she used to go and share her life in women's conferences. And the women would come away feeling overawed. I saw superwoman. They'd like to be like her. And she kind of enjoyed it. And it wasn't that it was a lie. She was like that. But let me tell you what happened. Her husband was in the plane. She felt really in control of her life as a Christian. Time-wise, everything. Everything was being done and in order. And her husband was in that plane that hit the Pentagon. And he was killed. And she said, I now realize not, nothing about my life is under my control. Turned around by that incident. A whole life. So if she did any of those things, I suppose she did afterwards, it was a very different message you heard from this sister. Same as Paul was a speaker and a teacher before, but he now says, I'm not sufficient for these things. But God's made me a minister of the New Testament. Now let me tell you at this stage what the difference between the Testament and the Covenant is. It's quite easy, really. The covenant is bilateral. It's two parties. A testament is unilateral. One party. And the word they use in the New Testament is testament. Will. So why this covenant stuff? Well, I couldn't go into all the detail here. But let me tell you this. The Bible, the Old Testament that is, was translated into Greek in the 3rd century BC. And it was that Bible that the early Christians used. Now, for some reason, when they came to translate bereath, the word for covenant, like selling a house, getting married, that's a covenant, they did not choose the word for covenant. They chose the word for a testament. And I re the reason I think is because of how God revealed himself to Abraham. When God made his testament with Abraham, he put him to sleep. What you did when you made a covenant in those days, you would cut an animal in half and you would pass through the gap between the two parts of the animal, or a number of animals, as a sign that both parties were making a, an agreement, a covenant. But when God did it with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep. And he himself passed through 
as a smoking fiery pot. In other words, God says, I'm doing everything. Now, what Paul is talking about here is not that. It's talking about Moses. Moses came 400 years later. And Moses was given the law, the Old Testament law. He went up to Sinai, and it was engraved on stone. But it was not permanent. This is the point Paul's making. It was not permanent. It was until Christ came. Then, then your life would be transformed, and you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what this is all about. And so he says this. He's made us ministers of a New Testament, not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the law gives, I mean, but the Spirit gives life. Now I want to ask you, I want to ask you this. Do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is living in you? Well, it's not anything to do with you. It's nothing to do with who you are. It's to do with responding to God's offer of salvation. Like the woman at the well, Like Paul says, be reconciled to God. Like he says, turn to the Lord and the veil will be taken away. Next time we'll look at the veil, maybe. What happened was Moses, when he went up the mountain and stood in the presence of God to get the law, his face shone and the people couldn't look at him. So he put a veil on his face. And he says, you know, the Jewish people still have that veil. They can't see who Jesus is. One day they will. But it's true of Gentiles as well. We have a veil that prevents us by nature from seeing our own sins and our Savior. But if you are humble and say, Lord, save me, like your grandfather. Lord, forgive my sins. I believe you died for me on the cross. Then he will come to you. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I stand outside the door of your life and I knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. I'll eat with you and you with me. In other words, we'll be together. You will receive me as Savior. Doesn't happen automatically. It certainly doesn't happen by being religious. It certainly doesn't happen by coming to church, this one or any other. It comes when you, in your own, on your own, say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. And you won't do that while you're trusting in your own self-sufficiency. You'll never do it. Because there is a crucifixion here of pride, your own pride. And for many, many people, alas, their pride is more important than their salvation. And they go to the end of their life with their pride before Jesus. 
And now is not the time to go into what happens then. But let me tell you, you don't get saved. But if you're prepared to lay down that and say, no, I need you. I need you, Savior. I, 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 this bread and wine, tell me I need you. I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to come into my life. I need you to change me. I need you to fill me. I need you to take over my life. I'm not saying everything will become easy. I found it extremely hard recently. But it is real. I'm finding something different. And that different is you. But you have to do it. You've got to make that choice. It doesn't just happen. So if you hear today, if you hear his voice, as God said to the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness, do not harden your hearts. Ask him to be your Savior.